Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 11, Nehemiah chapter 8, continued. As we continue in Nehemiah chapter 8, it occurs to me that the focus of this chapter is a subject that I'm confronted with virtually daily, both by emails and face-to-face. How do we obey the law of Moses in our current circumstances? And if we can't obey all the law to the letter, should we try to live by any of it? As pertains to Nehemiah and Ezra's time, so many of the commandments and ordinances of God's Torah had fallen into disuse as a result of their Jewish exile to Babylon. Everything that required a temple and a priesthood was impossible to observe up in Babylon. Kosher eating to the divine standard was not doable. And so in some cases, replacement systems were invented by the more zealous of the Jews. Now those systems followed the Jewish exiles that returned back to Judah. And of course, it became the norm for those 95% who chose to stay. The political reality was that the law was given to the Hebrews almost a millennia earlier under the conditions of self-rule, having just been freed from Egypt. But now the condition was that Judah was merely a small province and a vast Persian empire, and the Jews were Persian citizens under the authority of a Persian king, no matter where they lived. How might divine laws and regulations that by design were to be not just part of the Hebrew religious system and their sphere, but rather were to also be the everyday civil laws and moral code that the Jews live by. How would this translate to a people who were now but an insignificant population under the firm rule of a powerful pagan government? And as we read in Nehemiah 8, and as we'll discuss further today, Ezra introduced an important concept that I have tried to introduce as well to all of you. When we can't follow the letter of the law because circumstances dictate that we can't, we should follow the principle that any particular law is built upon um, a regulation that has a principle behind it. And the truth be told, if the Torah and the law had not been intentionally designed by the Lord to have a sort of cross-cultural flexibility and an adaptability to time and to progress, then it was doomed to failure. From the moment the Israelites crossed the Jordan into Canaan and began to encounter life in a pagan land, fighting against and living among various pagan people. What we do not see 
is Ezra telling the people that because you can't do one law as it was originally intended, then the whole law is dead and gone. He doesn't say that because sometimes the letter of the law necessarily has to be pushed to the background and the hard work of finding the principle of any particular law has to be done, that all obligation to the law becomes optional. For many centuries, the Christian solution to this challenge of making the law um, relevant to changing times and circumstances has been to declare it abolished. So we just simply wipe away the challenge. According to our traditional institutional church authorities going back as far as the 4th century AD, it is they who shall dictate our religious observances, our morality, our behavior. It is they who shall declare the holy days. Man-made Christian customs and doctrines shall replace God's laws and then they'll evolve as political correctness evolves. Let's reread part of Nehemiah chapter 8. Open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to start at verse 9. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it is page 1140. Again, starting at verse 9. Nehemiah the Tershtah, Ezra the Kohen and Torah teacher, and the Levites who taught the people said to the people, Today is consecrated to Adonai your God. Don't be mournful. Don't weep. For all the people had been weeping when they heard the words of the Torah. Then he said to them, Go and eat rich food and drink sweet drinks and send portions to those who can't provide for themselves. For today is consecrated to our Lord. Don't be sad, because the joy of Adonai is your strength. In this way, the Levites quieted the people as they said, Be quiet, for today is holy. Don't be sad. Then the people went off to eat and drink and send portions and celebrate because they had understood the words that had been proclaimed to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' clans of all the people assembled with the priests and with the Levites before Ezra the Torah teacher to study the words of the Torah. And they found written in the Torah that Adonai had ordered through Moses that the people of Israel were to live in Sukkot during the feast of the seventh month. And that they were to announce and pass the word in all their cities and all Jerusalem, go out to the mountains and collect branches of olives and wild olives and myrtles, palms and other leafy trees to make Sukkot as prescribed. So the people went out and they brought them and they made Sukkot for themselves, each one on the roof of his house, also in their courtyards, in the courtyards of the house of God, in the open space by the water gate and in the open space by the Ephraim gate. The entire community of those who had returned from the exile made Sukkot, and they lived in Sukkot, for the people of Israel had not done this since the days of Yeshua, the son of Nun. So there was a very great joy. And they also read every day from the first day until the last in the scroll of the Torah of God. They kept the feast for seven days. Then on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Nehemiah, Nehemiah is called the Tirshatah, usually translated as governor. Tirshatah is not Hebrew, it's a Persian word. And it helps 
to realign us to the reality that Nehemiah may have had a Jewish racial heritage, but to the world of his day, he was a Persian official, the king's own cupbearer, governing via Persian law over Persian citizens in a Persian province called Judah. And verse 9 shows with certainty that Nehemiah and Ezra were contemporaries. They cooperated to convene this gathering on the first day of the seventh month, Tishri. And each played his role. Nehemiah is to be commended as his role is obviously one of organizing. And it is Ezra who is made front and center. Nehemiah doesn't insist on the spotlight. It is said that the reading of the law by Ezra caused the people to weep. However, Ezra and the Levites admonished them that they should cease their tears and instead celebrate with joy. Why were the people mourning? Because God's purpose for the law was served. It first made the people aware of their sins, then it convicted them of those sins, and then showed them what their predicament was, and finally what the consequence of sins was. Paul's comments on this subject in the book of Romans could just as easily have come from Ezra's mouth as he stood there on that wooden platform before the people of Judah. In Romans 7, 7 through 7-13, we read this. Therefore, what are we to say? That the Torah is sinful? Heaven forbid! Rather, the function of the Torah was that without it, I would not have known what sin is. For example, I would not have become conscious of greed if the Torah had not said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, in seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, worked in me all kinds of evil desires. For apart from Torah, sin's dead. I was once alive outside the framework of Torah, but when the commandment really encountered me, sin sprang to life. And I died. The commandment that was intended to bring me life was found to bring me death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, sin killed me. So the Torah is holy. That is, the commandment is holy and just and good. So did something good become for me the source of death? Heaven forbid! Rather, it was sin working death in me through something good so that sin might be clearly exposed to sin, so that sin through the commandment might come to be experienced as sinful beyond measure. See, many Jews had apparently not heard the law in a long time. Some, no doubt, had never heard it. And as the hours of instruction passed, it became clear that the traditions and the customs that had been developed over the past 175 years in exile, the traditions and customs that dictated everyday life, didn't necessarily match with God's laws. It was a sobering wake-up call. Think upon what's happening here. Just as Paul said 500 years later, 
The knowledge of their sin had been dead to these people standing before Ezra because they didn't know the Torah. Paul says in Romans 7-8, apart from Torah, sin is dead. So was Paul suggesting that staying apart from the Torah was supposed to be a good thing? That the right thing, the smart thing, is to intentionally make ourselves separated from God's laws, thus we won't sin. Hallelujah! Paul says in verses 12 and 13 that not only is the Torah and the commandment holy, just, and good, but that any thought that the Torah has become a source of death must be dismissed. Heaven forbid, he says to that notion. (laughs) Modern Christianity says just the opposite. Here's the standard, admittedly not universal. Here's the standard Christian formula. Formula. Just be ignorant of what sin is according to the Bible by avoiding the Torah. And therefore, since you won't know what sin is in God's eyes, you can't commit sins. Instead, sin is now customized for each person. Sin has no standard. Whatever God tells you and you and you is sin in your spirit is sin. But that same sin may not be sin for me and vice versa. Thankfully, the people standing in front of Ezra took the laws of Moses to heart. And they began mourning when they realized their sorry state. It's my hope. It's my purpose in life. It's the reason for the existence of Seed of Abraham and Torah class. That someday, all believers will open the Torah and weep. Finally realizing the truth and the relevance of it. And yet... We have Ezra and the other leaders telling the people to stop their mourning. Instead, celebrate with joy. What are we to make of that? I think the best single word to um, explain the reaction of both the people and the leaders is bittersweet. Think about the meaning of that word bittersweet. Bitter and sweeter opposites. How can something be both at the same time? The definition of such a thing is called irony. And yet this irony was true. It was bitter for the people to learn that they had been displeasing God, had somewhat intentionally ignored God's word, and what the terrible consequences for this were. They had been living in exile as a consequence. They had returned to Judah living in a heap of ruins as a consequence. They were subjects of a pagan king as a consequence. Yet ironically, it was sweet that here they were finally learning what pleased God. Now they knew it with certainty. They were no longer relying on flimsy traditions of men to try and be in harmony with God. They found out that while disobedience indeed brought curses and death, obedience brought blessing and life. 
And all and the day that they were, were hearing all of this was itself a God-ordained holy day, the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Teruah. And this holy day was meant to be a joyful day, a day of abundance, not a day of sadness. This is exactly how it ought to be for modern believers. Don't consider consider it a defeat that the Lord suddenly reveals to you that the Torah is alive and well after you've denied it all of your Christian life. Don't consider it a day to be sad and mournful when finally the scales fall off your eyes and you realize you have a duty and obligation before the Lord to obey His commandments. Think of all those bittersweet tears that you cried the day you first believed. That moment that you stopped running from God. That you knew Christ was real, that He died for you, and that you had been rescued from eternal death because of your sinful ways. How awful for your past. How guilty for rebelling against the Lord and how wonderful and thankful for your future that you felt all at the same time. That is essentially what's happening here in Nehemiah chapter 8. Well, in verse 10, Ezra continues to explain why the mourning of the people should turn to celebration. It is because, he says, the joy of Adonai is your strength. The word translated in the complete Jewish Bible as strength is mauz. And more literally, mauz means a refuge. It means a place of safety. The protection of a stronghold. So the joy of the Lord is our place of protection. Have joy in the Lord by getting into harmony with Him, says Ezra, and do that by means of knowing and obeying His Torah, and then that will put you in a place of safety. The rabbis regularly speak of the Torah metaphorically as a fence. And if we stay within the fence of the Torah, we are protected by the Lord Himself. Well, in verse 12... We learn that the people got the message and they left to go home and to feast and to drink wine but also to send portions. In other words, what better way to celebrate than to have food? I ought to get a big amen out of that one. Having a special meal on a festive occasion was common to the Old Testament. In fact... A special kind of sacrifice called the Zevah Shlamim had been established in God's law just for these festifications. With this kind of sacrifice, a small portion was burned up on the altar, but the majority was given back to the worshiper to eat. However, the term sending portions, Shalach Manah, is a Hebrew expression that means to give gifts of food to those who are in need. The idea is that all Israel is to celebrate and those who have plenty are to be sure to include those who have insufficient means to join in. Nobody should be left out. Well, upon verse 13, 
We've now turned the page to a new day. We're now at the second day of Tishri, seventh month, and the assembly is continuing. Thus, since on the day before the people had been dismissed to go home to celebrate and to send portions, only part of the crowd remained. And so those affected by what happens next is described only as the heads of the father's clans. And what happens is essentially a Torah class breaks out. And as they're studying the Torah, they were no doubt in Leviticus, they learn that part of God's instructions concerning the Sukkot celebration that's only a couple of weeks away is to build and live in sukkahs and huts. Leviticus 23, 39 through 43, says this, But on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered the produce of the land, you are to observe the festival of Adonai for seven days. The first day is to be a complete rest, the eighth day to be a complete rest. And on the first day you are to take choice fruit, palm fronds, thick branches, and river willows, and celebrate (coughs) in the presence of Adonai your God for seven days. You are to observe it as a feast to Adonai seven days in the year. It is a permanent regulation, generation to generation. Keep it in the seventh month. You are to live in Sukkot for seven days. Every citizen of Israel is to live in a sukkah so that generation after generation of you will know that I made the people of Israel live in Sukkot when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am Adonai, your God. Now, before we address their observance of Sukkot, let's discuss an obvious omission. The Feast of Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur is supposed to happen on the tenth day of the seventh month. It is a very special time when the day itself is a full-blown Shabbat in which no work is to be done. It's a day of fasting, not of feasting. Leviticus 23, 27-32 The tenth day of this seventh month is Yom Kippur. You are to have a holy convocation. You are to deny yourselves. You are to bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. You are not to do any kind of work on that day because it is Yom Kippur to make atonement for you before Adonai your God. Anyone who does not deny himself on that day is to be cut off from his people. Anyone who does any kind of work on that day, I will destroy from among his people. You are not to do any kind of work. It is a permanent regulation through all of your generations, no matter where you live. It will be for you a Shabbat of complete rest. And you are to deny yourselves. You are to rest on your Shabbat from evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening. Okay. Bible scholars have weighed in on this missing day of atonement in this passage of Nehemiah since time immemorial. Modern critical scholars say that the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were written before the Torah was written. So only later was the day of atonement even added. There's no evidence for that. But it's a quite common claim today among Bible academics who find the Bible to be nothing more than Jewish literature and myth, having no actual spiritual influence because they don't believe there is such a thing as a spiritual world. 
Some speculate that there was a strain in relationship between the priesthood and Ezra. Or perhaps Ezra and the acting high priest. So Ezra canceled the Yom Kippur observance that centered on the high priest going into the Holy of Holies. Again, this is just fanciful thinking. There's not a hint of such a thing in the Bible. But for me, the bottom line is we're not told. My, my, my one and only thought on this is that everything we see happening so far has nothing to do with the temple. Everything in this chapter is happening away from the temple by the water gate. The rituals of Yom Kippur, however, are entirely within the temple and only involve the high priest. So I guess what I'm suggesting as a real possibility is that Yom Kippur did happen. But it bears no relationship to Ezra's reading of the Torah, the celebrating, the teaching of the people by the Levites, and so on, so it's beyond the scope of this chapter, since this is all about the law and its relationship with the common folks. Yom Kippur, from a biblical standpoint, is a, was a 100% priestly affair. The people are simply supposed to do what? Rest. That's it. They are to observe a Shabbat. This is not a seventh day Shabbat, but a special feast day Shabbat. Judaism later added to the biblical instruction and created a number of traditions for the lay people to do. For instance, on the ninth day of Tishri, before the sun sets, sunsets, thus becoming the tenth day in Yom Kippur, people are to gather and observe Kol Nidre all right, at a synagogue. Kol Nidre is actually a prayer that, uh, that, that uh, declares the person is annulling any vows they made over the past year. During the day of the ninth, there's supposed to be two festive meals. One in the morning, and the other one just before the onset of Yom Kippur. On Yom Kippur, there's supposed to be five prayer services at the synagogue. And depending on the strictness of the observance, people are not to wear shoes made of any kind of leather. They're not to wash. They're not to bathe. Now let's talk a little bit about the command in Leviticus 23:27 to have a holy convocation for Yom Kippur. And I'm going to warn you ahead of time, this is really loaded. This concept of certain holy days calling for a holy convocation is greatly misunderstood. And I want to address it because it expands outward into some awfully touchy areas of scriptural commandments and instruction and religious observances. And it has caused anger and accusations and deep divisions within Judeo-Christianity. First, the phrase holy convocation is in Hebrew, Kodesh Mikra. Kodesh Mikra. Gentiles and English speakers 
commonly take the term to mean, and you'll see it often translated like this in our English Bibles, as holy assembly. So the thought is that a holy convocation, a Kodesh Mikra, is a call for God's people to assemble together for some kind of a worship service. This is not so. Rather, from a biblical perspective, Mikra more means a reading or a proclamation. It can mean a summons in the sense that people are being summoned to do something in common like pray. But in no way does this mean that people are to travel to a common place for prayer. Thus by no means is the day of rest, this festival Sabbath of Yom Kippur, a call for people to travel to the temple for an assembly. Rather, the biblical sense of a, of a pilgrimage or a journey to a designated place to, for an assembly to hold a common worship event is called a chag, a chag in Hebrew, not a michra. And there are only three biblical feasts that are chag, collective assemblies, where a journey is required. Matzah, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Only three. I want to <laughs> follow me now because this is going to get dicey. Today, for many folks within Messianic Judaism especially, is the belief that Saturday, Shabbat, is the God-authorized day of worship. In fact, it is to be the chief, if not the sole, day of collective worship. And they get this from Leviticus 23.3 because we read here, Work is to be done on six days, but the seventh day is a Shabbat of complete rest, a holy convocation. You are not to do any kind of work. It's a Shabbat for Adonai, even in your homes. So the term holy convocation... Kodesh Mechra is seen as, well, we're supposed to assemble on Shabbat. Wrong. It simply means a holy reading or a holy pro proclamation. In fact, traveling for assembly on Shabbat is greatly restricted. Plus, the Torah is clear the only place of a holy journey to assemble, a Kodesh Chag, is where? The temple in Jerusalem. That's it. Not anywhere we choose. The temple in Jerusalem. So if the Hebrews had been instructed in Leviticus 23.3 that they were to travel to the temple for an assembly on every Shabbat, meaning every seventh day, it would have been a practical impossibility once they crossed the Jordan River and then scattered to occupy the territories of the districts that were assigned to the twelve tribes by Moses and Joshua. Can you imagine? Utterly impossible. In fact, Orthodox Judaism does not claim 
that Shabbat is the Jewish day of worship. They do not. No Orthodox rabbi would tell you that Shabbat is the Jewish day of worship. As concerns worship, Shabbat is just another day to have worship. Additionally, uh, rather admittedly, tradition has made the worship on Shabbat somewhat different as to the rituals and the prayers from other days. But nevertheless, this in no way separates, it does not designate Shabbat as the Jewish day of worship. Daniel shows us that he prayed three times per day every single day of the week and he prayed towards Jerusalem. In fact, the rabbis will tell you, Daniel is the model that Judaism uses for prayer and worship. It's a myth in our times, sometimes held by Messianics, Jews as well as the many Gentiles who attend Messianic synagogues, that Shabbat is the biblically ordained day of worship. Often it is thought that by declaring Saturday is the day of worship, we are doing what our Jewish friends, more specifically the Orthodox in, in Israel, are doing. That's not the case. And then this is held up against Sunday, which indeed is the declared Christian day of worship, and then Saturday is deemed as superior and Sunday as inferior, or maybe even a pagan day of worship. And therefore, a Jew should worship communally only on Shabbat and should shun the first day of the week worship. Well, the Orthodox worship daily at the synagogue, including Sundays. And they don't agree at all with this concept of Shabbat as the official day of worship. The Orthodox rabbis fully understand and declare Shabbat's the day of rest, not the day of worship. So I want to be very clear. If you are a Messianic or Hebrew roots and you harbor the notion that Shabbat is in any way the official or set apart or better or even highest Jewish day of worship, as practiced by Judaism, you've been misinformed. If you think that Orthodox Jews avoid Sunday worship, you're misinformed. If you think that there is even such a thing as a designated day of worship from within the Scriptures or within Orthodox Judaism, you're misinformed. So hang, to, to, to hang on to that notion is to act on wrong assumptions and on bad information. Now, for Christians. Those of us who might think that Sunday is the proper and only authorized day of worship are also incorrect. As with the Old Testament, the New Testament does not ordain an official day of worship. So where did this whole notion of day of worship come from? Around 100 AD, the Gentile church father Ignatius advocated the replacement of Sabbath, of Shabbat, with a new day called the Lord's Day, which would be the first day of the week. (laughs) 
he was roundly criticized for this by other Gentile Christian bishops. Further, Ignatius urged that followers of Christ avoid any meeting on Sabbath and instead designate Sunday not as a day of rest, but as a day of worship for Christians. A couple of centuries later, Sunday as the Lord's Day was officially created by Constantine in the 4th century A.D. And as Emperor of Rome, he declared it to be the official day of worship across the entire empire. But what isn't usually explained is, it wasn't just the official day of common worship for Christianity, but for all religions in the Roman Empire. And Sunday was chosen for two reasons. First, because Christians had been meeting for worship on Saturdays, among other days, which the Jews also did. And Constantine's stated goal was not to do anything that the Jews did. And second, because the sun worshiper religion of the empire, known as Sol Invictus, which at that time appears to have been the most prevalent religion practice in the empire, met on Sundays. So, by declaring Sunday as a national, as the national day of worship, national day of worship, for all religions, including Christianity, Constantine avoided a very messy political and religious problem. I want to end this discussion about the term holy convocation, Kodesh Mihra, by saying that what I have read in their writings leads me to suspect that the Gentile church fathers and the early bishops and Constantine, who were all blatantly anti-Jewish, were simply confused about the Sabbath and about the need for a day of worship. And like so many Christians and Messianics today, thought that at least in the minds of the Jews, the two were essentially the same thing. They're not. God's ordained Sabbath is strictly the day of rest. It is not the day of worship. There is no God-ordained day of worship. Any designated days of worship are man-made traditions and customs. And interesting, interestingly, <laughs> the Jews didn't make any traditions about any particular day being the designated day of worship. Fourth century Christians did that. Once more, that is not the same issue as to which day is Sabbath. That is well established in the Holy Scriptures. And it is Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. It's not optional and it's not changeable. But most important, please hear me. Please cease judging one another about which day or days you go to a communal worship meeting.
Worship any day you like. And know that God finds it perfectly it's acceptable. It's humans that get all bent out of shape about it. Not God. Well, getting back to Nehemiah 8.15. Hop down off my soapbox for a minute now. We find that the leaders sent out word that everybody was to construct a sukkah. They would all go out and collect various kinds of, of tree branches and large plant foliage to use in the construction so the people obeyed. And all over Jerusalem and Judah, people built sukkahs and they placed them on their roofs and in their courtyards and by the water gate where they were gathering and at another place called the Ephraim Gate and even in the temple courtyards. Everyone lived in a sukkah for the entire seven-day cycle of the Feast of Sukkot. But perhaps the most interesting aspect of this passage is the writer says that building and living in sukkahs had not happened since the days of Joshua, nine centuries earlier. That is, apparently after Joshua's death, the Israelites either stopped observing Sukkot in general or stopped building and living in sukkahs as part of the celebration. We do get specific mention in a few places in the Old Testament prior to Ezra and Nehemiah of celebrating feasts, but there is no specific mention of celebrating Sukkot. In Ezra chapter 3, we saw that some years earlier Ezra had led a Sukkot celebration. So it seems that at the least the use of huts, sukkahs, had been dropped hundreds of years earlier. And that only occasionally was the Feast of Sukkot celebrated at all. It's a very sad commentary on Israel's history. Just one more reason that God eventually ejected all 12 tribes from their land. The good news is that the people were so glad to be doing this. They didn't see living in sukkahs for a week as a burden. Rather, it was a newly discovered joy. And verse 17 also gives us a clue as to why this building of sukkahs was embraced with such zealousness by the people. An emphasis is made in this passage that it was the returned Babylonian exiles who celebrated using sukkahs. I think it's reasonable to postulate that they felt a kind of kindred spirit with those Egyptian refugees led by Moses who were returning from their exile. And so this is how Israel is supposed to feel every time they celebrate Sukkot. They are to remember that they were slaves in Egypt. God redeemed them and then their ancestors lived in huts out in the wilderness. This feast, feast reconnects present Israel with past Israel. And it makes them as one common people with one common identity. And this is why I am so adamant that Gentile believers need to celebrate this and the other biblical feasts. Because it connects with Israel as one people 
under one set of covenants given to us all by the one God. But sadly, it's also the reason that Christianity in general refuses to celebrate the biblical feasts. They want to be separate from Israel. They want to be separate from Israel's covenants. You know, it's hard to know what to make of these words that they read from the first day to the last day, no doubt meaning the seven days of Sukkot, and they read from the Torah. There is no scriptural instruction to do that. So perhaps this isn't the beginning of a new tradition, it's just rather a one-time event brought about by the completion of the wall around Jerusalem and then a determination of the people to return to the Torah. And the only way to do that is to study it, to remember it, and to do it. And we'll move on to chapter 9 next week.